the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science The Pause platform. I'm your host Sabrina Brando and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Greg Tully who is the Executive Director of the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, PASA. Welcome Greg. Hi, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Yes, looking forward to this podcast. And, you know, we always like to start the podcast with a kind of a short story on, you know, perhaps your first animal connection or how you got to work with and for animals. So if you want to share your story with us, that would be wonderful. Sure. Yeah, I always, I wish I had some amazing, inspiring story, like I grew up with gorillas or something like that. But there's, um, there, there's not, you know, a, a single profound moment. I've, I've always had a real passion for nature and animals and um, it's, yeah, yeah. As long as I can remember, you know, I, I always wanted a dog and my parents never let me have one. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really just as, as long as I can remember, I felt that a, a real connection to, um, to animals. And then when I started to look into careers, I realized like, Oh yeah, I can, I can get a job helping animals. That's, that's ideal. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry I don't have a, a single heartwarming moment. Oh, that's wonderful. That's no problem. I think there's very few people who will be able to say that they grew up with gorillas. But, uh, yeah, this, <laughs> this, you know, connection from growing up and, you know, as we're recording this podcast, I'm looking at beautiful picture, which I think is your dog. And so, yeah, so and also, of course, um, the realization that, I think a lot of us, when we're little, we don't necessarily know, maybe the veterinarian, but there's not many uh, professions that come to mind uh, when it comes to working with and in, you know, in the service of animals. So, um, yeah, that's just wonderful. So perhaps, you know, you actually went to study and go on to doing a PhD in evolutionary biology. So perhaps you can share a little bit um, on why you chose that path. Yeah, and this actually, um, my answer to this, relates back to what you were just saying about how it's sometimes you're, you don't really know what the career paths are that involve working with animals. So I was, um, yeah, in, you know, in university, I studied biology, took every biology class I possibly could. And, um, but I didn't really, wasn't sure what to do to make a career out of that. And um, I also, I, I also majored in environmental studies and um, it seemed like a lot of the environmental work that I learned about was basically you know, arguing with politicians, arguing with people who don't care about the environment. I thought that's, that's not for me. And um, so, yeah, I, I didn't have a clear way forward, but I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. And so I thought, well, you know, I, I should teach science and that's a good way to make an impact, you know, get, get thousands of people inspired about animals and nature. And, um, you know, typically if, if you want to teach, well, I don't like kids, I should say. So, um, so I thought, well, I want to teach, but I don't like kids. So I should teach in university. In order to do that, you need a PhD generally. And so, um, so yeah, I went to graduate school and got a P for a PhD. And um, in the process of that, I, um, you know, you have to do a lot of research to get a PhD, as you know, and uh, my passion was much more teaching than research. So it was, it was sort of a grind for me to get through all these years of research when I really didn't want a career in research. I just wanted to, you know, get, get people excited about nature and convey my knowledge to them. So I um, started taking some little breaks from graduate school and I, uh, you know, I traveled to Thailand, I traveled to Nepal um, and then traveling sort of turned into volunteering with, with NGOs and, um, and that got me interested in the nonprofit sector. And so by the time I finished graduate school, I was actually a lot more interested in the nonprofit sector than I was in academia. So at that point I started to work for NGOs and I really never never went back to, uh, to the academic world. So again, it's, I think if, when I was say 18, 20 years old, if I knew all about the many nonprofits that are helping animals and the important causes I could get involved in, I think I would have been a lot quicker to go down this path. But um, at the time I, I just didn't, I, I just wasn't aware enough. 
Yes, no, absolutely. And that's also such an important point. And also sometimes we think we might want to do something like, you know, teaching at university and obviously the qualifications that need to come with it. And then as we do things, we realize that, um, you know, just like you could be working as a volunteer, like you said, or a nonprofit sector, and you can realize that that is not really your thing. And sometimes, you know, it's, so it's really wonderful to hear your experiences and also obviously knowing things, you know, because we get that information shared through our community or through, you know, outreach. Uh, but sometimes also just having to try things and then realizing, well, this is not really what I want to do. And then, you know, and I think it's just great that you talked about, you know, voluntary work and things that you did in your student years to kind of broaden your horizons and how important that is to learn. So you started working in the nonprofit sector and uh, particularly also as the developmental director of the Nepal Youth Foundation. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about what that work was about. Yeah, yeah, that was my um, my first job in the nonprofit sector actually. And I, so as I was, so I, I, as I said, I traveled to Nepal actually a couple times by the time I finished grad school. And, um, you know, for me, grad school kind of wound down gradually and um, because I was, you know, writing chapters of my thesis, waiting for professors to edit them, sometimes waiting for months for them to edit them. And I uh, came across this nonprofit, the Nepal Youth Foundation. I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I'm obviously interested in nonprofits, interested in volunteering. So I'll just volunteer with them maybe, you know, a couple times a week while I'm, you know, finishing up grad school. And, um, and that quickly turned into a part-time job because somebody quit and then it turned into a full-time job. So I kind of fell into it, but it turned out to be a, a great opportunity. And um, you know, I remember talking with the executive director about how I could help. And I said like, well, I've, you know, written grant proposals for my own research and for my PhD research. And so I'm sure there's a lot of similarities between writing grants for research and writing grants for, you know, projects run by a charity. And so, um, yeah, that, that led to, to that job, which is really the, yeah, that was my first step that opened a lot of doors for me to, um, to other nonprofits. Yes. And another wonderful example, how one skill learned somewhere, um, and that's certainly not a skill that I have mastered for my PhD yet is finding the funding <laughs> and the grant writing. So, but, uh, learning one skill somewhere can help us, you know, um, land a job or, you know, get us to work with other people because of that skill in another concept, uh, context. So, yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, you moved on to, you know, marketing and communications. And this is actually back in California at the Marine Humane Society. And so perhaps you can talk a little bit about that transition and some of the aspects of your work involved there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, um, so I should say, I was thinking that my my ideal job would be working for um, an an organization that helps animals in in developing countries or around the world, you know, like in places where there's really the most need. And so um, the Nepal Youth Foundation was helping children in need in developing countries, which was great, but the, the animal component was missing. And then I got a job with the Marine Humane Society, which helps animals, but in California. So again, it was not, not exactly perfect, but that was another great opportunity. Um, it, uh, you know, working in marketing, I learned a lot about, you know, communications, graphic design, um, just how animal shelters, how, you know, a, a well-run animal shelter works, adoption processes, um, reaching out to the public. So that was another good opportunity. Um, and, but yeah, again, I was, I was sort of craving the international aspect of the work that I got really excited about for my time you know, traveling and volunteering grad school. And then um, I got involved with the Kathmandu Animal Treatment Center in Nepal, which is kind of the ideal for me at that point, you know, having animals and the international aspect, and it was a, a, a really important charity. So that was, uh, checked all of the boxes for me. So then I um, went to Nepal and started out volunteering with them and then helping them out. And then, um, Eventually, there was a they sort of, there was an opening for the executive director, and so I filled that role for a lot of my time there. Yes, that's just it's nice how you like 
back and forth in different places and then that draw to nonprofits and also Nepal, because that seems to be a country very close uh, to your heart that you really enjoy uh, working in. And uh, But you also then moved to... And I think also just backtracking on, you know, the importance of, you know, obviously caring for animals is one thing and caring for the people that care for animals or the community that is around it. But all the, the other skills, right, we talked about what are the, the jobs that you could have when, you know, wanting to work for animals or with animals. And, uh, and some of them are not directly with the animals themselves, but just you know, really good marketing and communicators. And these are all jobs that you could be thinking of at graphic design, you know, how do you communicate? How can you help um, to get the public on board or policymakers? So lots of, lots of examples here of different jobs available uh, in, you know, when we say the animal field. So thank you for sharing those. And talking about, you know, I'm looking at your dog, uh, <laughs> like the cutest face and you worked uh, in Thailand at the Thailand Soy Dog Foundation, the largest animal protection organization in Southeast Asia. So can you share more about what uh, you did there? Yeah, um, and just to, to I mean, circle back to what you're saying about these different jobs involving animals. We, we see that with, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I think I'll forget to bring it up later. Uh, with, with my job now with PASA, we see that a lot with the people who are interested in volunteering with us. A lot of them will start out as, um, you know, they want to help animals. They start as maybe zookeepers or interns at a zoo or volunteering with animals in some way. And after some time, they realize like, yeah, oh, there are a lot more options there. And so they reach out to us about learning to write grant proposals or learning to do social media for marketing purposes. And yeah, there, there's so many ways to help animals beyond um, the direct animal care. It's, um, yeah, I think they're, they're really things that fit almost anybody's strengths. Yeah, you asked about in Thailand. That was a sort of a natural progression from the Kathmandu Animal Treatment Center to moving to uh, you know, a bigger organization, working with a, a bigger scope. And um, it's the Dog Foundation runs a big shelter for dogs and cats and does rescues every day, veterinary treatment, um, sterilizations to reduce the street dog population. Um, they've also been fighting the, the dog meat trade in Southeast Asia. And um, it's, it's, it's actually horrific. Um, in certain countries, um, in certain areas of countries, dog meat is widely eaten. It's out in the open. And, um, you know, farming dogs rarely works. It's, it's done in South Korea, but it's not really done anywhere else. So the common thing to do is to collect stray dogs. And, um, and this expanded even to um, people from Vietnam driving to Thailand taking dogs off the streets, even stealing people's pet dogs and then driving them back to Vietnam to slaughter them. And so um, so when I was at Soy Dog, we ran a big campaign to fight against this. Um, and yes, it was it was a good experience. You know, really this, like I said, this combination of, you know, the sheltering and direct animal care with more campaigns and activism. And, um, you know, the campaigns led to collaborating with government officials, you know, with the police and the army and border patrols and, partnering with other organizations. Yes, and really great that you named that whole network that is necessary when we want to, sometimes is necessary when we want to act for animals and make a difference in their lives. It's all these different you know, layers and people and authorities and uh, inter-country collaboration. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, you alluded a little bit, and of course, in the introduction, I already mentioned uh, PASA briefly, but, you know, going through, you know, different uh, nonprofits and working with, you know, um, domestic animals and so on, then you moved to the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance as the executive director in 2015. So perhaps, you know, some people probably know you and know of PASA and the team and everybody else, all the sanctuaries, but perhaps you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, what is PASA and uh, what are the aims? Sure, sure. So PASA is, it's, it's an alliance of primate sanctuaries across Africa. And it was formed, be, it was formed 21 years ago because um, in the late 90s, there were a, a lot of primate sanctuaries being established and, you know, th th there was some communication between them, but not as much as there could be. And um, yeah, so 
people working in primatology and in conservation in Africa. So these different organizations, each uh, facing the same challenges over and over again, but not really learning from each other. And you know, each of them alone has kind of a, a small voice and a local focus. But um, so there's a decision in 2000 to have a meeting in Uganda and bring together the founders and directors of these organizations for the, for, for most of them it was the first time they'd ever met each other. And um, a key question at this meeting was, do you want a way to communicate more and, and collaborate more? And if so, what does that look like? And uh, a major outcome of this meeting was the decision to form PASA. So now we're uh, a registered nonprofit in the U.S. And, you know, we have staff around the world, but mostly in the U.S. But PASA was very much created by the African sanctuaries. And so that's, that's still really close to the heart of what we do. It's, um, you know, the focus is always on working with these sanctuaries and, you know, letting them tell us what needs to happen and, and making sure that we're building their capacity. And, um, and I feel it's a, it's, from my experience, it's, it's quite unusual in uh, animal protection for many different organizations to work together. I mean, I've seen in different, you know, in, yeah, in Nepal in Thailand and California, just different organizations helping similar species in similar areas tend to, to butt heads a lot. Um, you know, there are differences in methods, differences in what they think is the appropriate level of care. Maybe there's some, you know, competition for funding. And um, so I, th I think it's, it's really special that with PASA, um, the, the sanctuary leaders are able to get beyond those differences and, and work together. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing organization. Um, yes, and that really also talks about the importance of collaborations between the PASA sanctuaries, right? And um, because there's a lot of, um, of course, animal care and welfare, but you also do a lot in the conservation and education and sometimes research uh, areas. Um, perhaps you can uh, talk a little bit too. Let's maybe, let's start with which are some of the major wildlife threats that um, PASA, you know, tries to mitigate or collaborate in mitigating? Oh yeah. Yeah, and first I'll say I, I completely agree. The, um, the collaboration is is so important for everything PASA does. It's uh, you know, it, it, you know, from my past experience working with other organizations, it's just if you're just staying in your own little bubble, you're always going to be limited in the scope of what you can do. You know, maybe you're really influential in one small area, but you have no connections beyond that, or you know, you're running into challenges and you don't know how to fix them because you're figuring everything out by yourself. But um, there, there's a lot of power in these, you know, sharing ideas and information with each other, talking about their challenges, um, having a single stronger voice to, to form a bigger movement. Um, I mean, we, we see a lot at our, our conferences. We have a conference every year, which um, the main purpose of which is to is for the directors of these sanctuaries to share ideas and build their networks. But you know, we, we cover a lot of other topics, and there are a lot of other people present as well. And uh, you know, we always encourage people to really talk about their challenges and, um, you know, don't sort of give the usual pitch of, oh, everything's great. Our education's great. Our welfare is great. But really talk like, hey, I'm having this problem with our local communities and we can't figure this out. And it's, it's a really great way to, to spark discussions and, um, you know, people can share from each other's experiences. And you asked about the, uh, the conservation threats. Um, yeah, I'd say that I mean, one of the big ones, obviously, is habitat loss. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge threat in Africa, like it is in so many other parts of the world. Um, you know, there's, there's there are a big presence of foreign corporations. There's, you know, mining, logging, um, and also on smaller scales, habitat is being destroyed. I shouldn't say on a smaller scale, but on a more local scale, um, habitat is being destroyed for farmland. And um, it's... Yeah, so it's, it's absolutely devastating. Um, the international wildlife trade is also something that we're hearing more and more about these days where, uh, you know, animals are smuggled. For, for primates, in many cases, um, the live animals are smuggled to China where there's a rapidly growing number of zoos and they don't have, um, well, they're not following standards about ethically acquiring animals or, um, you know, standards of care in the in the zoos are really lacking, and so there's um you know we're seeing a, a lot of flow of primates from Africa 
to China for zoos. Also, we get a lot of reports of animals going to the Middle East where they end up sometimes as um, exotic pets or in exotic animal collections. And also in, in Africa, um, there you know, it's, it's, it's shockingly common for someone to have a, you know, a monkey tied to a rope that you know, they bring to the market or um, hotels will keep a chimpanzee as entertainment for their guests. And so, um, so yeah, the, yeah, the live uh, wildlife trade is a huge issue. And a third one is the bushmeat crisis, which um, is something we don't hear about as much these days. I feel like the, you know, the, the international life, the international trade is more fashionable now, but the bushmeat crisis is still a huge issue. Um, you know, it was, I'm sure decades and decades ago, it was pretty sustainable for people to go out and hunt to feed their families. But now it's become a big business of people going into the forest, you know, shooting whatever they can carry out. And in many cases, it, this, this wildlife meat is so valuable that the hunters don't even eat it themselves. They sell it to someone who drives it to a city or a bigger town who sells it to someone else. And it's kind of, um, you know, a, a, something nice for wealthier families. So it's not, we're not talking about people who are eating monkeys because they're starving. In most cases, it's actually a, it's a profitable business. And this has been, you know, absolutely devastating, partly because, um, you know, the hunters don't care if what they're hunting is endangered or not. They're not going out to, for one specific species. They'll, they'll really hunt whatever they can get. So, um, so yeah, there are, there are tremendous threats to primates in Africa. And, uh, Sadly, with the growing human population, all of these threats are, are exacerbated. Yes. And you talked about, of course, you know, people going out to either, you know, for the wildlife trade or for the bushmeat trade. And, you know, of course, you know, you also talked about animals being, you know, uh, as a pet somewhere, as entertainment. And, and perhaps, you know, you can talk to, you know, the role of the Pasa sanctuaries in, in the rescue of these animals or rehabilitation and the care. What are some of the efforts that Pasa sanctuaries are involved in in caring for orphaned animals or animals that have been long time in the entertainment uh, business? Yeah, um, I think first I'll say, you know, we call the Pasa members sanctuaries, but sometimes I'm hesitant to, to call them that because it, it can lead people to think that really you know taking care of animals for the rest of their lives is what they do and they do so much more than that um a, a real a great strength of these sanctuaries is that they're you know often many of them are in um key primate habitat you know deep in the forest and surrounded by local communities and even for the ones that are in cities they're you know, they're embedded for the long term in these areas. There are a lot of, um, there, there are countless nonprofits based in Europe or North America that will send some people to Africa, do a project, and they fly home again. Maybe they go back later and check on it, fly home again. You know, there are a lot of projects funded by government agencies in the UN that might, might be a three-year project or a five-year project, and then it stops and they wrap everything up. But you know, these sanctuaries, many Pasa members have been working in the same location for 20, 25 years. And so there's a, a great strength to that in that they have strong connections with the local communities. They understand the cultures and the needs of the people. They have um, really close relationships with government officials that are involved in wildlife protection and protected areas, um, you know, anti-trafficking law enforcement. So that, that puts them in a really strong position to, um, to run program, run conservation programs that are um, you know, culturally relevant and are going to work well within the specific resources and needs of, of their areas. And so, I mean, they run a, a huge range of programs. I mean, this could include, um, let's see, education for children, you know, going into schools and getting kids to appreciate wildlife as itself rather than just as a commodity, um, giving presentations in villages, you know, talking to all the villagers. I mean, in some cases they'll um, bring battery powered projectors and show videos with conservation messaging in villages that have no electricity. Um, you know, meeting with community leaders, village elders, um, helping them to create more sustainable uh, livelihoods. Um, you know, yeah, on the topic of livelihoods, you know, projects can include building schools, building health clinics, providing clean drinking water. Um, a lot of 
yeah, a lot of alternative livelihood work, like you know, training people to find better ways to make a living and feed their families. So they're less likely to feel like they need to illegally go into a protected area and hunt animals just to, to make ends meet. Um, and then yeah, in terms of habitat, there's you know, a number of PASA members have worked with their governments to create new protected areas, which is absolutely amazing. Um, a lot of them are supporting rangers to patrol the forest because it's, you know, it's sort of a sadly a common problem that um, national parks can be created, but if there's no money for actually protecting the park, it's it's almost useless. And so, in many cases, the PASA members are um, funding patrol groups, you know, rangers or eco guards, um, providing them with equipment so they can actually crack down on law enforcement on on wildlife trafficking and poaching. And um, yeah, there, there's a, a wide range of impactful programs that that they're doing that are uh, you know working um, in many cases on a grassroots level, but in some cases also working at the policy level to to produce meaningful changes to you know hopefully stop this um, stop primates from approaching extinction. Yes, absolutely, and and I agree. It's like often when we say sanctuary, then we think about the people working with the animals and caring for the animals, which of course is very important and is something that the PASA sanctuaries of course do for the animals there, but there's so much more. And, you know, with this podcast, you'll find the link and go check out, you know, PASA as an organization and there's links to all the different sanctuaries and, you know, there's beautiful videos and photo walls and all kinds of information of children, you know, playing soccer with their, you know, very cool t-shirts on different primates and of course health and safety, um, you know, communication, so many activities indeed that are happening throughout uh, the sanctuaries and uh, the facilities. And um, yeah, and, and Greg, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, these different, you mentioned you have a, a, a conference every year, but you also have specialized workshops that are happening that, you know, are around veterinary and animal care and, and education. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about the workshops and the different activities that are organized. Yeah, you know, PASA, as, as the alliance representing these, these organizations, we... Um... Yeah, we focus very much on building the capacity of our members, you know, rather than creating a situation where we just raise money and then hand it to them and raise more money, hand it to them. We feel we can make a much bigger impact by helping the sanctuaries to do what they do better. And um, so in many cases, you know, we leverage our networks and our other resources to make that happen. And um, of course, one, one great way for building capacity is training. So we have, um, veterinary workshops typically every couple of years and uh the next one our next one is going to be in kenya in the middle of 2022 and we're starting to plan that which uh which is exciting um and you know we have workshops for the the people who run the education programs the community development programs uh at our annual at the annual conference that we have for the sanctuary leaders you know there's, there's always a lot of training in that um about you know, topics ranging from fundraising to managing disease outbreaks to working with volunteers, you know, a wide range. And, um, and as you know, Sabrina, because you're, you're a coordinator of the program, we also have uh, the, our primate care training program, which is sort of a, a different approach. Instead of bringing a group of people together for a workshop, we have uh, experienced instructors who go to a sanctuary and train all of their animal care staff. Um, and I'll say with all of these trainings, it's, it's really important that um, the, the topics are driven by the sanctuaries themselves. You know, I don't want to be the, I never want to be the American guy in America who's sitting here deciding, oh, they need to learn more about this and they should do that better. You know, we, we always look to the sanctuaries to tell us what their needs are. Um, you know, before we run a conference or a workshop, we'll always send out a survey about potential agenda topics to all of the sanctuary leaders. And they, and from that, we can put together an agenda that we know is addressing their priority topics. Um, similarly with the primate care training program, you know, we always reach out to the sanctuaries first and ask them what they need help with, which could, as you know, it, it could range from um, sort of basics of cleaning and feeding to um, assisting the vets, you know, understanding primate behavior, managing animals with problematic behaviors, um, a huge range of things, but it's, 
that's really a, a key value for us. As I said, in the, as I said earlier, um, everything we do fundamentally relates to the sanctuaries, and so yeah. So we always look for them and look to them and their expertise guiding these trainings. Yes, absolutely. And you know, we of course have a lot of the people, the instructors going out, are also already working in the Pasa sanctuaries, and you know. As you know, the content development also revolves around looking at the expertise that is already within the sanctuaries that can help. Uh, also, outside, you know, past the sanctuaries, there's much to learn from each other across zoos and sanctuaries and other wildlife rehabilitation centers. So, and, you know, of course, you have already shared a lot of different approaches in, you know, what is driven by the sanctuaries themselves, how PASA is assisting, how we're all, how we're all working together. And uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit about, you know, you're talking about growing staff members. So what have been some of your successful approaches and strategies for growing teams and reprograms? as you have done in, in Thailand and, and also for PASA? Oh yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think first, yeah, first I'll talk a little bit about um, why are we growing PASA? You know, for, for most of PASA's history, it was always a small organization that um, didn't have a lot of staff and the, you know, the focus was on really, as I, as I said before, building the capacity of the sanctuaries. And I, I joined PASA six years ago and you know, it was clear at that point with the with the severity of the threats to primates, um, as I mentioned, the habitat destruction, you know, the bushmeat trade, um, illegal wildlife trade, we 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 needed to look bigger than that. You know, it's um we needed to think on a bigger scale to deal with such big problems. And so, yeah, I talked a lot with the board of directors, and there was you know a consensus that. You know, we absolutely want to continue this direct support for the members, you know, the trainings and, and other things I haven't talked about, like giving emergency grants and networking for them, but complement that by um, also becoming more involved in these bigger conservation threats and, and being a, a louder voice about primate conservation. And so we're aspiring to be an organization that's more of a, a legitimate partner for the big conservation organizations, you know, someone who can... Um, sit down at the table with the big players and actually contribute to that. Not, not just ask for support, but really be able to, to give back and form meaningful partnerships. And so, so over the years, you know, we've been deliberately growing the organization. But when I joined PASA six years ago, I was the only staff member. And today we're hiring our, our seventh member of our team. So I'm really excited about that growth. Um, you know, our budget has increased probably seven or eight times from what it was when I started. And, um, and this is essential, you know, we're not growing just to be bigger, but this, this is essential to be able to be a respected conservation and, and a genuine partner for the bigger conservation organizations. So this all, um, yeah, this ties into our, our goal of complementing the direct support for the sanctuaries by forming a real cohesive movement um, sanctuaries working in conservation. And again, this all, as, as I said, this all um, goes back to the sanctuaries. You know, we're not just doing conservation for its own sake, but the areas that we focus on are very much led by our members in Africa. You know, they tell us what the priorities are and what the needs are. And then we work with them to um, identify the best ways that PASA as an alliance can, can address those needs. And so, so how do we do it? Well, um, I hate to say things come down to money, but to some extent, it, it does come down to money. Uh, of course, if you want to be able to run bigger programs and hire more staff, you're, you're going to need more money to do that. And so we've, we've really focused a lot in the time that I've been with PASA on um, diversifying our revenue you know, to become more sustainable by not depending on just a small number of donors or just one type of donor, and um, especially focusing on online fundraising organization with a global reach that doesn't have a real one place it it absolutely makes sense for us to use the internet to reach as many people as possible so we you know we advertise on facebook we send email appeals we post daily on social media um you know writing a lot of grant proposals is, is key as well you know grant proposals of all sizes for you know uh 
a couple thousand dollars from zoos up to hundreds of thousands of dollars from government agencies. And um, yeah, and you know, building our reputation in the world feeds into this. So, um, so yeah, having a, a, real, a really strong development plan and carrying it through has been critical for our growth. And um, you, you mentioned it's Soy Dog Foundation where that, you know, that organization grew a lot in the time I was there. And it was similar where, I mean, of course, you need to be running impactful programs and have a great reputation and um, you know, make an impact that the public sees and appreciates and values. And um, all of that supports the, the fundraising efforts. Yes, wonderful. That's just really great to hear how important it is and the di diversification and really thinking all this through. And you already mentioned that you, of course, are, when I say you, of course, I mean PASA and the, the individual sanctuaries. You're working with different organizations also for policy changes. And um, can you talk a little bit in which ways that is done? Sure. Um, you know, one way that PASA is becoming more and more involved in policy is with CITES. So um, CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, which is it's a it's an international treaty through the UN that regulates um, trade in endangered wildlife. And uh, so the, the signatories to the treaty are all countries, not nonprofits, but still as nonprofits, we can have a, a voice influencing CITES regulations, you know, encouraging for the protection of more species and, you know, um, urging parties to take a more uh, evidence-based approach. And so, yeah, I've been attending a lot of these CITES meetings. Uh, lately, they've been virtual meetings. And so here in here in Portland, they've been at three thirty in the morning, which is pretty far from ideal. But um, but but yeah, we've been participating in those and um, you know, aligning ourselves with a lot of other nonprofits that are involved in policy to protect wildlife as well. And um, you know, on a more case by case basis, we are supporting our members with um, their own work to, you know, whether it's pushing for creating national parks or convincing governments to crack down on wildlife trade. Um, a good example of that is uh, one of our newer programs that we call Action for Chimpanzees. And this came about because um, the sanctuaries in West Africa, you know, including our members, um, CCC in Guinea and Takugama in Sierra Leone, uh, told us that they were seeing an you know, increase in chimpanzee trafficking. And there's a, a law enforcement and the involvement of the government was really a missing piece in, in fighting this. And so we've been working on it. And also they told us that um, the, the borders in the countries in that region are pretty porous. And so it's easy for traffickers to move from country to country. And so, I mean, for example, if you crack down on wildlife trafficking in Sierra Leone, the smugglers might move to Cote d'Ivoire or they might move to a different neighboring country. And so um, a regional approach is really needed for this. And, you know, the sanctuaries in that region each work in one country and they don't, they don't have strong connections across borders. So this is a perfect niche for PASA. You know, with our, our networks and our more international presence, we've, we're coordinating this effort. And um, so right before the pandemic happened, we held a, a conference in Guinea and inv invited uh, government officials and NGOs from five countries in the region. And now we're continuing to build on this and, um, you know, we'll, we'll have another conference and we're supporting projects to raise awareness about wildlife trafficking. And so that's, um, you know, that, that's a good example of how our members told us about a need and now we're working to build their capacity and coordinate their efforts throughout the West African subregion. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. And we'll make sure also to link to CITES website. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in learning more about that, then you can also find that link. So Greg, you've talked to us about, you know, the various programs that the sanctuaries or the facilities are running, you know, all the different programs. And of course, also for the animals, the care of the animals as they're coming in when they're rescued. Uh, animals that are, you know, coming in from different places. And sometimes, you know, the animals cannot necessarily be reintroduced. They get, you know, whole of life care 
in, in these beautiful places, but sometimes it is possible to reintroduce the animals, to rehabilitate them back into the wild after, of course, a lot of work. And perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, which sanctuaries might be doing this, with what species and what are some of the criteria? How are they doing this? Because that's, of course, quite an endeavor. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. I think, um, and I feel like there's a little bit of a misconception about reintroduction sometimes that um, some people think that, you know, reintroduction is the main purpose of wildlife sanctuaries and that's the, you know, the, the purpose that they exist. And I mean, PASA members would love to reintroduce as many of these primates as possible and, you know, put them back in the forest where they can live in, you know, just be free to roam and live the lives they evolved to live. Unfortunately, reintroductions are often very complicated, especially with primates and especially in Africa. Um, one challenge is uh, reintroduction sites. You know, a, a lot of habitat in Africa is disturbed. There's a, a lot of poaching. And so, um, and with some species, for example, with chimpanzees, if you reintroduce one group of chimps into an area where there's already a, a group of wild chimps, they could have a, a war with each other and some of them could kill each other. So obviously we don't want that to happen. So um, there's actually, sadly, there's a real shortage of areas um, where, you know, there's intact forest with adequate food for the animals and not too much of a risk of poaching. And there's not already wild populations of the same species that could cause conflict. So that, that's one challenge. And, um, you know, looking at the individual animals, there can be some challenges as well. You know, I mean, a key part of reintroduction is with primates is to, you know, study the behavior of each animal and, um, and determine if they're suitable to be able to survive on their own in the wild. And sadly, you know, some of the, some of the primates that spent a lot of their lives living in a cage or, um, were severely traumatized, just, um, you know, we wouldn't want to just leave them Put, put them out in the forest where they don't have access to, to care from people because they, they just might not thrive. Um, and so having said that, there are a lot of challenges through introductions, but, but most PASA members have reintroduced primates and it's, and it's still absolutely a goal. And um, it's, it's a lengthy process. You know, it involves forming social groups that are pseudo, in most cases, you know, forming social groups that could live in the wild together, identifying the, the release sites, which might be you know, days, literally days of travel, you know, on, you know, boats and planes and things to get to their release sites. And, um, you know, in many cases, they, they um, create uh, cages at the release site to do a, what they call a soft release, which means not just opening the cage door and letting the animals run away, but you know, doing it gradually in steps so that you can monitor them and make sure that at each step of the process that the animals are behaving appropriately and able, to, you, know, so you, you release them, but continue feeding them for a while and you reduce the amount of food that you provide so that they're, you know, they need to forage for, for themselves. And even after you stop providing anything for them, you know, it's, it's still important to monitor the animals so that you can um, ensure they're doing well and also collect data so that we can improve future reintroductions. And um, I mean, it's one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that these you know, primate reintroductions are a constant work in progress. There's a you know, there is um, an IUCN, well, several IUCN best practice guidelines, um, which include a lot of the important you know, considerations and, and things to, you know, decisions that need to be made as part of reintroductions, but there's really not a step-by-step -step manual because it just, every one of these is very experimental. And so, um, so the reintroductions are difficult and they can also, especially with great apes, they can be tremendously expensive. You know, if we're talking about traveling long distances and have, hiring staff for the sole purpose of tracking animals through the forest for days. It, um, yeah, there are a, a lot of complications and costs involved. And so while on one hand, we very much aspire to release as many of the primates as possible. On the other hand, we, um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult and expensive. And in some cases, the best thing for individual animals is actually not to be released. I mentioned the ones that are that are very traumatized, and you know, we want to do what's best for the welfare of each individual animal. And in some cases, the best thing for them is to continue to receive care from humans through the rest of their lives. Um, you know, depending on each, so, so we look at each animal's individual context and their needs, and we want to do what's best for them. 
Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing this background and, you know, the challenges involved and the details that go into this and, and highlighting how important it is that we look at each individual and the individual within the group, if they are with a group, like you mentioned, the group of monkeys uh, rescued in Zimbabwe. But uh, yeah, the importance of keep on looking at what is in the best interest of the individual animal. And, you know, perhaps that is life in uh, in human care. So thank you so much for sharing that information also on um, introduction, rehabilitation, or, you know, caring lifetime for the animals. And Greg, you, you know, have shared so many different stories with us, like how did, you know, how you got into working with animals and learning about where you wanted to work and put your efforts and your energy and, and how you have done that over the years together with organizations and your teams and, and everybody else. And we always like to, of course, conclude with a story. And I know you mentioned about, you know, all the stories that are put on to PASA's website and Instagram and everything else. So perhaps you could conclude with a story from PASAV or from one of the animals in conclusion of this podcast. Oh, sure. Yeah, we have a, a lot of stories, um, especially with the, you know, in many cases, when a primate needs to be rescued in a country where there is a PASA member sanctuary, they already have connections with government officials and um, you know, the, the right networks to be able to get involved and rescue the animal. But when animals are in need in a country where there's not a PASA member organization, that's often where PASA is needed to step in and um, you know, create new, new contacts and use our international networks. And so um, one example was some months ago, um, about more than 20 monkeys were stolen from the forest in the Democratic Republic of Congo and um, from different areas around the country. And they were put into a truck with, with fraudulent papers and the aim was to smuggle them to South Africa and that from there sell them onward into the international wildlife trade. And so they... Um, across the border from DRC into Zambia with these fake papers, drove across Zambia, across the border into Zimbabwe. And, um, and once they were there, the Zimbabwean officials looked at the papers and saw that something wasn't quite right. And so they, they confiscated the monkeys and um, arrested the traffickers. And so this was you know, the, the biggest primate confiscation we've ever heard of, you know, possibly the biggest ever. It was, uh, at the time it was 25 monkeys. And, yeah, this in, in situations like this, we try to get involved as soon as possible because um, many governments in Africa don't have a clear plan for what to do with confiscated live animals. In some cases, they'll end up at zoos that don't have the um, the knowledge or the facilities to provide proper care, and many of the animals die. Um, in some cases, the animals just disappear. So, um, so we don't have a member sanctuary in Zimbabwe, but we do have some partners. Um, there's a, a sanctuary called Free to Be Wild and other NGOs and, uh, and people who we're working with. And so we, um, you know, we reached out to them and um, yeah, I mean, Lisa Highwood is another person that we're working with and reached out to our, our members and other contacts in DRC. And I mean, it, it took months to try to, uh, to find a good solution for these monkeys. But um, you know, Jack's Sanctuary, which is one of our members in DRC, um, by good luck met with um, a couple high-level government officials and convinced them to give approval for the monkeys to go to Jack. And then we also needed approvals from the Zimbabwean government. And with a lot of these international rescues, it seems like every government agency wants to get involved. You know, Interpol was involved and the foreign ministry wanted to give official approval to it. And letters had to go back and forth between the two governments. And so it, um, it, it took a long time and, uh, but and uh, Frank, who's one of the founders of Jack, went with government officials in a truck down to Zimbabwe. They collected the monkeys and brought them back. And, um, and now they're living in Jack's, oh, and the, the fundraising was another part of it too. So, you know, Jack was willing to, so Jack is a, has been a chimpanzee sanctuary with more than 30 chimpanzees. And, um, they were willing to take on these monkeys because they were in such urgent need and the government gave them approval for that, but they didn't have any facilities for these monkeys. 
So together with Jack, we we ran a big fundraising campaign and got you know really generous support from a, a number of donors. Um, it's you know, the Olson Animal Trust was a, a, the lead donor, and but many other groups gave all donations of all sizes to make to make it possible to build new enclosures for these monkeys. And so, um, yeah, after months and months of work, the monkeys are now at Jack Sanctuary, and they're you know after spending months living in these little they're living in cages in a checkpoint on the border. It's just completely inappropriate facilities. But now they're in big enclosures, they're in naturalistic social groups, they're running around and playing. And, um, and the aim is as much as possible to um, reintroduce these animals to the wild. So that's a, it's, it's a good success story that highlights the values of, you know, the, the, the values of PASA's network, as well as the strengths of the sanctuaries and, um, and how we all came together to, to rescue these monkeys. Yes, absolutely. It's such a success story. And, uh, and also, you know, the patience that is necessary, you know, the commitment as in keeping in Dutch, we say having a long breath, I don't think that translates into English, but it's just like, you have to keep on breathing and keep on working. And sometimes these things can take a very long time. But again, it highlights, you know, what you mentioned earlier, the importance of collaboration. And now, you know, across uh, country borders and across organizations and of people, you know, um, finding those connections. So that's really wonderful. And of course, also hearing about where it is possible reintroducing the animals back into their natural habitat, which is also one of the things that um, many of the Passa sanctuaries are involved in. So thank you so much, Greg, for sharing all your stories. There's many more stories uh, on the Passa website on instagram facebook make sure to follow pasa and of course where if you can donate you know uh support the sanctuaries and do what you can especially in these very difficult times we are recording this in 2021 during covid so thank you again greg for coming to highlight all the important work that pasa and all the individual sanctuaries are doing oh thank you sabrina it's really been a pleasure to talk with you and thanks for inviting me onto your podcast Yes. Thank you so much, Greg, again, for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a pause member today.